the perfect work of patience. The perfect work of patience. Lord, I pray now that as we come to your word, you will quicken it in our hearts. I pray that you will unveil our eyes and open our minds. That we could see your divine hand moving in the nations, in America, in the church, and most of all, in our life. Lord, thank you. I trust you to bring this to a conclusion and end the reign of wickedness. Lord, thank you. Let the joy of your kingdom fill your people's hearts as the finished work is accomplished. In the name of Jesus, amen. You could begin with the great kingdom of Babylon. You would see there the hand of God lifting up Nebuchadnezzar. And then you would see the hand of God move against Babylon, the great center of learning. It was the United States of its day. You would see God's hand move against Babylon as the Medo-Persian armies very wisely began to divert the waters of the river that flowed through Babylon And that night, as they diverted the waters, the armies came in under the walls of the city on the dry bed of the waterway, the river. And that night, the king of Babylon is killed. God had his statesman, David, who was not killed, but was instead immediately brought in by the new king of the Medo-Persian Empire, Darius. You see the great Medo-Persian Empire collapsing as the Greek Empire arose and consumed the world. History kept flowing. Imagine the man who is living with a business enterprise in the city of Babylon under the Medo-Persians. And suddenly the whole government is overthrown. The city is ransacked. Alexander the Great weeps because there is no longer any nation for him to conquer. And he he dies in a, a drunken mess because there's nothing else to capture. But slowly, there is a rising out of Italy the Romans, who come in, establish law, begin to build roads, begin to set up a civilization structure that has never been known in the history of the world. They have legions of armies so powerful, these men, trained, equipped with the latest equipment, Their their hobnailed boots echoing on the pavements that Rome has built. You know, Rome even built roads that today you can see in England. They took over the tin mines of Europe. They prospered. They were wealthy beyond imagination. The majority of people living in Rome, slaves. They became increasingly decadent. And the Mongols began to come in. 
nomadic peoples who got a taste of the luxury of Rome and said, we want more. And you see the great Roman Empire rotting from the inside with no power to defend themselves against the Mongols, the Visigoths. And Rome falls. Then arises what is called the Holy Roman Empire, the Catholic Church, into the darkest of ages. You see the panorama of history. But what if you were living in Roman days? It would look every morning the same. You would get up. You would go to your job. You would experience the power of Rome, the intrigue of Washington, D.C. Everything would look normal to you. It would be normal to have slaves functioning as the base of your society. You would accept it. It was the norm. And it crashed. And the dark ages came upon the world. Persecution of Christians. I've shared that simply to say one thing. History has meaning. God's hand is in history. None of these empires that rose and fell surprised God. He was the one who caused them to be defeated and destroyed them. America is no exception. I've never known anything but the American empire. Have you? If you lived in another world and another nation, you've seen other cultures functioning. I've only seen the Western world. I've only watched the European nations. That's my experience. God's hand is moving. God's hand is moving in China. God's hand is moving in the Soviet Union, Russia. God's hand is moving in America. All the nations of the world, God is watching and he is involved in, and nothing is going to take him by surprise. And he sees the wickedness of America going in like some bird of prey into Syria, into Iraq. He sees America stretching out its hand and snuffing out the life of literally millions of people. America will also disappear from the world stage. Our time is limited. Every empire's time was limited. Because finally, a stone cut out without a hand. Daniel, the second chapter, comes crashing down on this image of empires and grinds it to pieces. And a mighty wind blows and all of these empires are blown away as if they were dust and nothing. And a great mountain grows fills the whole earth. The kingdom of Almighty God will be established. Today it's necessary that we not think that we are the great nation of history and that we will endure forever, for we will not. I don't believe that America has been written off by God. I believe that God still has a purpose for America. And it's my cry that that purpose be fulfilled. 
And I pray that it's for righteousness and not wickedness. But let's not kid ourselves. There are powerful forces moving in our world behind the scenes with immense amounts of money and power and military might. And these forces are moving. We see the daily news. But what's behind that daily news? What organizations are causing those things to transpire? Nothing happens by accident. The hand of the designers move counter to the will of God. It's not accidental that during the last eight years, America has been decimated. It started before this administration. It started under the bushes. It even started under Ronald Reagan. It goes way back. It started under Eisenhower, if truth be known. It was Eisenhower that allowed Russia to take captured American soldiers into Russia. And he was not countered. Russia was not countered by President Eisenhower because he didn't want to cause political disturbance. There were wise men at that point who said America should take out Russia. There was a greater desire for political correctness. There was the cry of the Japanese people who sent an emissary to the Congress of the United States after their defeat. And they said to the Congress, your God is more powerful than our gods. Will you send us missionaries and will you teach us about your God? Congress denied the request. Your life has a purpose. You may not recognize it, but you are a key part in God's plan for what he wants to do during these end times. And if you get up in the morning and you go through your routines and you think that there's no plan for your life being brought forth, you're in a boxing match with a bag over your head and you're going to get knocked out. God has a purpose for your life even as he has a purpose for America and he has a purpose for Russia. God works in these great empires of the world and he moves events and circumstances and he brings about his will. Just the same, God works in our lives, bringing about what he desires in our hearts and in our lives. And if we're not aware of what he's doing in us, we think things are just happening. And there's no meaning to what's happening in our lives. And we will miss what God is doing in us and for us. James the just, as he was known in church history, was a half-brother of Jesus. He died as a martyr sometime around A.D. 62 to 64. He was executed for his faith and trust in his brother, Jesus Christ. He never calls Jesus his brother. He will not elevate himself to that level. Instead, he opens the book of James 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word for servant is doulos, which is the lowest form of slave. Without the right of family, without the right of property ownership, being totally given over to total rights granted to the master. You were property if you were a do-loss slave. Now, there were other words that were used for slaves, and they had the right of family. They had the right of property ownership. But the do-loss slave had no rights. They were totally given to their master. They were the property of the master. And he's saying, I am the property of my little brother. I am the property of Jesus Christ. Only a man who's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ can humble his heart sufficiently to say, I am your slave, sir. I will serve you, and I will die for you. And he did just that. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, James was the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. He begins his message in verse 2. Now, not only is he the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church, but when the persecution came about 15 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, and the fist of persecution came down on the Jerusalem church, Christians squirted like water all over the area. And wherever they went, they started little house churches. He was the senior pastor of these little house churches who still looked to him in Jerusalem as the senior pastor. Now, what would you think would be foremost on his mind? He's going to write to his parishioners who have suffered persecution. He's going to write to his parishioners who are still in Jerusalem and all of the little house churches. What do you think would be foremost on his mind? I want to share that with you. This is a pastoral letter to his congregation. My brethren, and that word in the Greek for brethren does not mean only masculine. It is also feminine. So literally you can translate it, my brothers and my sisters. It is used for both men and women. Consider it all joy when you may encounter This encounter is a combination of two Greek words. And it means consider it pure joy. When you are surrounded by people and events that begin to cause you trouble. By temptations. He's saying the devil will come to you. And your own heart will rise up. And every seductive thing that pushes your particular buttons will be brought forth by the enemy. Because God has a purpose for your life. And the only way he can block that purpose from being accomplished in your heart is to cause you to begin to backbite against somebody else. To begin to feel like a victim, to begin to feel sorry for yourself, to begin to be angry and bitter with another person. He's saying, consider it all joy when all of these things begin to jump up and down around you and wave their hands and say, hey, 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 come over here. 
I'll take care of you. Various temptations, a whole variety of them. Now, let's be honest. Do you have buttons that if somebody pushes them, you have a visceral response? Wives know what they can say to their husband. And husbands know what they can say to their wives. Or you know what to say to children. And believe me, children know what to say to you. And your boss knows what to say. And your workmates know what to say. The devil knows what to say. When you're tired, when you're hungry, you are most subject to these temptations. Now listen to what he wants to say. He's saying, treat these things with joy. When your husband says something to you that you don't like, can I have everybody up here with me? When your husband says something you don't like, He's saying, smile and treat it as joy. Be happy for the opportunity to demonstrate that you are not going to be seduced by a temptation. Now, listen, please. Knowing that the testing of your faith works patience. Now, patience must have a perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing at all. So Pastor James is saying to us, if you will be patient, you will be perfect. If you are willing to endure the temptations... If you do not give way to bitterness, you do not give way to anger, you do not give way to being a victim. If you are very clear in your heart that you will wait on God, that waiting on God will work perfection in your life. If, however, you strike out You grab a hold of that situation and you set somebody right. You argue. You fight. You come to blows. Verbally come to blows. In your heart, you rehearse. I wish I'd have said this to them. You are not enduring. You are not walking Waiting on Jesus. Remember, he has a purpose for your life. That purpose is accomplished in your life, not by giving you what you want, but by giving you an opportunity to learn how to be patient and endure. It's in the patience, it's in the development of that patience that perfection has its way in your life. It's giving in to the, to the flare of my angry heart. It's giving way to the flare of my ambition. It's giving way to being a victim. It's giving way to all of the ways the devil wants to come and sink your boat and block God's purpose from being accomplished in your life. This is the first thing Pastor James wants to talk about with his congregation. They must have been a very impatient group. Maybe like the National Prayer Chapel.
I'll tell you honestly, some people just pull my chain. And I don't want to be patient with them. I want to straighten them out. I want to tell them, look, you ought to know better than this. Stop it. I'm tired of you doing this. Makes me angry. If I do that, perfection will not do its work in my heart because I am taking into my own hands the work of God. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for sharing honest feelings, that there's not a place for sharing the reality of what's going on between me and another person. But I can do that without insulting them. I can do that without putting them down. I can do that without remembering the last time they had the edge, and so this time I'm going to collect a pound of flesh. I've just been waiting for you to mess up so I can nail you to the wall. I mean, I can remember as a child, one time my father gave me a very severe whipping. And I finally was able to go back and talk to him about it. And he, would, he came into my room to talk to me about it. And I said, Daddy, all I did was... He said, yes, but it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. What do you mean, Daddy? Well, do you remember what you did this morning when you got up? Do you remember what your attitude was? Do you remember how you treated here and what you did here? And, and I didn't punish you for any of that? It just needed this one little thing. And all of my judgment came down on you. I said, Daddy, I don't like that. It's not fair. I can't help it if you don't tell me what I'm doing and it's wrong. I had wisdom beyond my age. And my dad and I made an agreement together that he would not again let judgment stack up. But he would deal with each issue as it came up. I've remembered that. And I very much work on not letting any judgment in my heart build up toward a brother or a sister, but to deal with each issue as it comes without insulting the other person. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with a couple in counseling and they begin to recount what happened last week, last month, last year, and all of the woes come out. What? Why didn't you deal with that a year ago when that happened? Well, I couldn't win then. Uh, but you can win today. You can say what a bad person this is you're married to. Well, you're married to him, so you must have helped create the mess. God has a purpose. And if we're not conscious of what God is doing in our hearts, because our own stuff keeps rising up and creating trauma and drama, how are we ever going to understand what God's purpose is for us? This was Pastor James' first word to his congregation. He only wrote one book. Evidently considered this to be of vital importance. Verse 4, now patience must have a perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing at all. Now, as I was reading through this, my immediate response to this was, Lord, I'm not smart enough to know how to do this. And the next sentence, but if any one of you lacks wisdom, he must ask from God 
the one giving to all men generously and without insult. God does not want to insult you. But he's willing to give you understanding. This morning, David spoke about Jacob. He stole the birthright, stole the blessing. And God gave him 14 years of punishment working for Uncle Laban. After 14 years, God told him, now you build your your family. And he began to build his own wealth for six years. And then he was released and he was sent home. I've spent most of my life in the concentration camp of God. And it was well-deserved because I took the gifts of God that he gave to me and I focused on accomplishing the ambition of my heart. And God would not let me fulfill the ambition of my heart. He had another purpose for me. And in his kindness, he crashed what I was doing. I immediately went into another venue and began to do the same thing and start from scratch. This time, I was in charge and nobody else could tell me what to do. And I was very successful. The church was very successful. And that's when the Lord came to me and said, It's your church, not mine. If you want me, close it. And all of the people were farmed out to other places. I've been spending most of my life under the discipline of God as he prepares me to do what he's called me to do in my life. Now, along the way, I praise God, I've been able to help many people. But it's not been me, it's been the Lord Jesus. I'm coming to the end of my time in the wilderness. And this church is coming to an end of its time in the wilderness. And the Lord God of heaven is going to begin to move with great power. Are you in a place emotionally and spiritually where you can recognize what God wants to do in saving this nation? And do you know what your part in it is to be? And do you know what kind of punishment God has you in? What kind of discipline God has you in? And are you learning the lessons of patience and perfection in Jesus Christ that he wants you to learn through what you have walked in in this church and in your life? To know that it's not about you or me. It's about Jesus. It's about what he wants to accomplish. And already with this little fellowship sitting here, there are thousands of people listening every day on the radio to the word of God being proclaimed. But we don't see that here. God has them and he warned me of this. He gave me a dream when I first went on the radio. And in the dream I was standing at a pulpit like this. And there were pillars like that completely blocking my view. I could hear the sounds of a congregation, a large one out there, but I couldn't see them. The Lord warned me that I was going to have to preach and preach and preach and preach, and I'd never see any result from it. But that people would be listening, 
God has done that in my life. He's done it in your life. Now God wants us to walk patiently with one another. And I just have to ask you, is there anyone you're impatient with today? And are you impatient and judgmental of those around you? Are you trying to force them to be what you think they should be? Are you criticizing them? Are you angry? Or have you come into that place of waiting on God so that you're content to allow him to work out in your life and in your church what he desires to work out for the small part we will play for America? Now, patience must have a perfect work. That is, patience must have a completed work where we no longer jab or say angry, mean things, where we no longer treat one another with disrespect because God will give us wisdom and he will not insult us as he gives us wisdom. I don't know how to say this to you. God is so invested in saving your dignity. God is absolutely invested in not stripping away your personal dignity. He respects you much more than you respect yourself. Now, I don't know about you, but respect was always a big issue in our home. Riding in the car. No air conditioning, so the windows were down. It was the heat of summer. We drove past a young man walking on the street. And I yelled out an insult at him. And I don't remember if I yelled pig face. I don't remember what I yelled at him, but I yelled a pretty nasty insult. My dad slammed on the brakes on the car, stopped on the side of the road, pulled me out of the car, jerked his belt off and whipped me. The young man was standing there watching this. My dad waved him over. Now apologize, Raymond. Wow. I learned a very important lesson. You treat others with respect and with dignity. And you don't yell insults at them. Or God will give you a whipping. It's so important in this church that we love and respect each other. That we not insult one another either in thought or word or action. But we treat each other with respect, with dignity. Do you know why? We were created in the image of God. We're saved. We are the children of the Almighty. And he's saying, he will give you wisdom. He'll give it to you generously. And he'll give it to you in a way that doesn't insult you. Now, verse 6. Now, he must ask in faith, not doubting at all. For the one doubting has been and still is like a wave of the sea being driven by the wind and being blown here and there. 
So that man must not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. I've preached on that so many times. And I totally missed the context of the passage. The context of the passage is waiting to finish the perfect work of God in my life so that I no longer strike out against other people, so that I treat others with love and respect and dignity. The context is that God wants to give me wisdom so that I will know how to deal with brothers and sisters. So that wives will know how to deal with husbands and husbands will know how to deal with wives. That will know how to deal with our children. Breaks my heart to see a mama jerking a child around. And she can jerk him around now because she's bigger than him. But the day will come when he's going to be the six footer and you're not going to jerk him anywhere. I think parents forget that children are to be trained now to be dignified friends of their heart. And that the way you treat your children now in yelling and screaming at them, they're going to treat you later by yelling and screaming at you and they'll be too big for you to shut up. See, this work has to be accomplished between mother and daddy between mother, daddy, and children, between brothers and sisters in Christ, between husbands and wives. This work of perfection must be accomplished where we don't insult one another, but we treat each other with great dignity because we are created for the purposes of God in the image of God. We're somebody. We're not nobodies. The resources of heaven have been assigned to you. You have a guardian angel that constantly is working with you to protect you and open the doorway for you. They are ministering flames of fire sent to those who are to enter into salvation. That's what the book of Hebrews says. The angels are servants of almighty God to come and serve us. To ensure that we make it to the kingdom of heaven. And so we ask in faith for the power to give up our temper against one another. We ask in faith For the power to not insult another person. We ask in faith that we won't be driven by our moods. You know, I talk to some people and they'll say to me, Pastor, don't talk to me right now. I'm in a really bad mood. What? Get over it. You don't have the freedom for a bad mood. That's not what God's about. We're not to be controlled by our feelings, our hormones. We're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit as he breathes into us, as he establishes us in that place of dignity that he has prepared for us. Our culture has become a culture of death and destruction. If you will watch where the devil has the power, human beings are treated as trash. They're treated as things to be exploited. And human beings rush into these situations where they are going to be treated as trash and they are going to treat others as trash things to be simply used women become objects of sexual lust men become objects of sexual lust that's the devil's whole deal 
to strip away the dignity of man, to strip away the dignity of a woman, to be treated as an object instead of a a glorious person created in the image of God. He's saying, stand by faith. Don't be blown around. Don't let these temptations that are constantly circling you and It's like a kaleidoscope. Have you ever looked in a kaleidoscope? You turn the wheel, and these beautiful images just keep flowing. And you wish you could just make a window out of that one. You wish you could just keep it, but suddenly a stone falls, and then it all shifts to something else. That's what temptation is like. It's constantly shifting. The Lord is saying, don't be subject to it. Keep your dignity. Recognize who you are. Recognize your place of importance in what God is doing in this world. Grow up in your place of dignity with Jesus. Then he says... Let the lowly brother rejoice in his high position. And the rich man rejoice in his humiliation. Because as a flower of grass, he will pass away. In other words, our standing before God is not based on the car we drive or the house we live in. It's not based on how much money we have in the bank. Our standing with God is based on whether or not we have learned patience in the face of the constant temptations so that we can enter into his presence and begin to fulfill what he has called us to. Whether we've allowed the blood of Jesus to wash us clean and to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Now, please understand, James is writing to people who are not walking in known sin. He's talking about maturity. He's talking about growing up in these things that God is bringing into our lives. The sun rose with scorching heat and withered the grass and the flowers all fell off and the beauty of its appearance perished. So the rich man in his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who endures temptation to sin because having become approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord promised to the ones loving him. There is an endurance that is required where we simply will no longer give way to our sin, where our quick tongue will be corralled, where our judgments will be shut down, where our criticism and our defenses no longer function, where we are willing to wait upon the Lord patiently, for him to accomplish what he desires. Now, you cannot be a patient man or woman if you are determined no matter what, you will have your way. You can't be a patient man or woman and insist that people around you have to function the way you demand they function. You cannot be a patient man or woman with a heart full of expectations for others. It means laying all of that down and letting Jesus' expectations for perfection in my life as I submit patiently to what he wants me to do. 
Pastor, I might die while I wait. That's right. And then go into glory. I'll never forget the morning I walked into the bedroom as Jan was bedridden, dying of cancer. There was a bright smile on her face. And she said, Ray, what? I've laid all my burdens down. I said, Lord Jesus, thank you. And we began to sing that song about having laid our burdens down. Are you carrying burdens today? Is your heart angry today? You think you've been treated unjustly. You think there are people after you. The Lord wants you to become perfect. He wants you to lay it all down. He wants to give you the dignity you deserve as a son and daughter of the Most High God. And he wants to accomplish his purpose in your life for the building of his kingdom. Almighty God, thank you. Would you have your way today in my heart, in the heart of my brother and my sister? Would you bring this church into the completed work of entire sanctification? where we have the victory and where we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Lord, accomplish your purpose for calling forth this little body of people. Lord, we're the weakest and the smallest of all of your people. We ask for your wisdom. And we ask to be made perfect in our enduring the suffering necessary to teach us patience. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.